Uh, I just got to set up my timer. <laughs> yeah. I hate you, Paul. Um, <laughs> uh, if I don't have it, man, I can go off the rails, but that's okay. <clears throat> Good morning again. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 16. That's where we've been, where we will be today for a bit of time here. Acts chapter 16. You're going to have to move quickly today, so uh, just track with me as, as best you can. We've got a lot of territory to cover. And, uh, you know, you can always go back online and listen again. I, Carol wasn't here last Sunday. I think she went camping, which we love to do. Anyone else love to camp? Man, that's just so much fun. And, uh, but, you know, we have a home group on Thursday nights, and she came in and was fully ready to go because she had listened online. And so if you, if you miss things in the sermon or if you miss a weekend for whatever reason, you can always go online and uh, take a listen and, and catch up there. So what's that? Yeah, you can. You can pause it, you can rewind it, and you can fast forward it, unfortunately. So um, Paul does that all the time, apparently. So we have been studying the Apostle Paul's ministry in Philippi, which was a major city in Macedonia, southeast Europe. Last week we looked at how Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl and destroyed her master's fortune-telling business. Uh, the slave masters dragged Paul and Silas before the city magistrates and had them beaten and thrown into prison. They were really, really torqued that they lost their business, but they were also torqued at the fact that Paul preached the gospel, which was a vastly contradictory message to what uh, Greco-Romans understood in terms of theology and, and truth. Um, once thrown, beaten and thrown into prison, the prison guard then took Paul and Silas and locked them in the inner prison, uh, which was like this inner cell block that was more guarded and more secluded and would have been basically impossible uh, by any human means to escape from. So they were thrown into this thing, and, uh, and that's pretty much where we left off. This morning, uh, I'm going to try to tackle, a, I don't know, nine, eight or nine verses. And uh, we're going to be picking up at verse 25 is where we'll begin. So I'd like to pray one more time before we uh, engage. Father, open our hearts and minds now. This is that moment where well, there's many moments, I suppose, when your scripture is read and we sing songs from the scripture and, and those things where you speak to us. But this is one of those special moments where you speak directly to us. And uh, we need to hear from you, Lord. Your words give life. Uh, my words do not give life. Only your words and your word and what you have said and spoken gives life and has the ability to give life even right now, even though this Bible's old and these things were recorded a long time ago, there is life in your word. It is living. Hebrews 4.12, it is living and active. It cuts right through the core of who we are. reaches into the deepest parts of who we are. And we pray that today, Lord. And uh, I'm excited to uh, be able to have the privilege to be able to preach your word. And guard my lips and my tongue and my mind and my heart and everyone in here. Give them focus. And, and this is a great group. They're always so focused. And, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're gracious, too, towards their preacher when he says a lot of things and even goes long sometimes. 
And so thank you for these folks. Bless them. I pray that you would speak to them and change them, as well as me. I'm not above them. I'm one of them. And I need your word as bad as everyone in this room, if not more so, because I'm going to preach. And so speak to us now. And may you be honored and glorified, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Verse 25. Verse 25, you there? If you're there, say, I'm there. All right. About midnight, okay, imagine with me, envision this in your mind's eye, they're, they're in jail, the inner cell, they're beaten to a pulp, they've been thrown into this cell, and Luke continues by saying, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> what the heck? Luke launches us right out of the gate by providing the most amazing picture of how a Christian should respond in the most difficult type of situation. He just comes right out in verse 25 and gives us a picture of what we ought to be doing in the midst of something like this. The city of Philippi had turned on Paul and Silas for preaching the gospel. It had actually exploded against them. They had been beaten and thrown into the most Secure cell block. What would you do if this happened to you? You've just been beaten. You've been thrown into jail. And now it's the middle of the night. And it's cold and dank. And let me tell you, man, these jails back then, county jail over here is like an oasis compared to what they had to deal with in these places. Just dirty, filthy rats bacteria, just nasty. Put yourself in Paul and Silas's shoes with me and put yourself in this place in the middle of the night. And you've been beaten, man. You are sore. You are sore, probably bloodied. What would you do if this happened to you? What should you do if something like this were to happen to you? And I think we're headed there in this nation. Luke gives us a snapshot of what Paul and Silas did which can and should serve as a model for all Christians if they should ever go through what Paul and Silas went through. And I would say in, in any other sort of difficult, hard trial, this model that we see in this particular verse can be used for any and all difficult situations and seasons and trials and persecutions. Luke's snapshot reveals three remarkable things they did in verse 25. It's really that simple Here's how they responded. Here's how Paul and Silas responded in the midst of a difficult situation. Number one, they prayed to God. It's right there. That's the first thing they did. There's a reason why that's chronologically the first thing. The first thing they did was pray over their situation. They could have been praying for healing because of their beaten up bodies. They could have been praying for a miraculous release. They could have been praying just for more grace. They could have been praying, and I would suspect this is what they were praying for, opportunity to witness. First thing they did in the midst of this terrible situation is prayed. The second thing they did was they sang. We can hardly get some people in this room every Sunday to sing, and they ain't going any, through anything like this. They were beaten and thrown into jail. They prayed, and they sang hymns to God. They worshipped God in the midst of this trial through song. 
that's amazing. You ever been brought to the, to the brink, to the end of your rope? And in, in some cases, I think Luther said it, man, when I, when I don't have words to pray, I just sing, is what Luther said. And let me tell you, that guy was much like these two dudes. Talk about persecuted and chased and harassed. You ever been to the brink? And man, I just don't even know what to pray for. I'm just going to sing. That's what they did. And number three, Paul and Silas witnessed for God. They witnessed for God. We look at it right there, and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners could hear them praying, which means they were praying out loud. They could hear them singing, which means they were worshiping and singing songs out loud. I think they were probably preaching, too, and talking about how marvelous God is and how gracious Christ is. The gospel was in the midst here. They were speaking and saying these things and talking back to each other and assuring each other of God's goodness. Because, right, when these things happen, you're not thinking God is good. You're thinking, why me? You think about that. You go through something like this. Is one of the, maybe, let's say the third thing that comes to mind, witnessing to others. Do you know how many people turn into a, a, a recluse when these things strike? We just talked about Brenda. She didn't turn into a recluse. She didn't shrink back. These guys prayed to God, they sang to God, and they witnessed for God. And here's what's really amazing about this story and about their response, or about how they responded to their situation. Here's something we need to notice real quick here, and that's that God heard their prayers that God heard their songs. How often do we think that when we're praying and we're singing and we're doing what we're doing, that God ain't listening and God ain't seeing? That God isn't hearing? You see, God was in their midst. He heard their prayers. He heard their songs. And guess what else he did? He saw the impact they were making on the other prisoners. And God was so pleased with what he heard and saw. Look at what he did in verse 26. And suddenly, there was a great, not a small one, not a tremor, not an aftershock, a great earthquake, so that, what happened, the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. These guys are praying, these guys are singing, these guys are witnessing, and God responds by rocking that entire place with a great earthquake. The place shook so violently that the foundation of the prison jarred back and forth, which caused the cell block doors to burst open, and the chains that linked the prisoners' shackles or bonds to the wall to basically snap off. You know, it was one thing to be thrown into the inner cell. It was another thing to be chained to the darn wall. This earthquake hit, man. Them walls came loose. Those, those bars came loose. Those doors swung open. These guys were freed. Does any of this sound familiar? Remember back in Acts 4.31 where the believers gathered to pray for boldness after Peter and John had been released from jail, freed from jail. What, what happened when they 
prayed when these believers came together in the upper room and, and, and prayed. They did one thing that Paul and Silas did. They sang and, 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 and witnessed. These believers just came together and prayed. And what happened when they prayed? God shook the upper room. Now take your Bibles and turn back to Psalm, let's look at Psalm 18, verse 6 through 7. I think that's the right one. Psalm 16, or no, Psalm 18, I'm sorry, Psalm 18, 6 to 7. Man, I got to figure out how to navigate my Bible more efficiently. Goodness gracious, I have no idea where I'm at. Now I know I've gone too far. Now I know I've gone too soon. Dang it. It's only the longest book in here, Phil. My goodness. How do you miss Psalms? I think somebody removed Psalms from my Bible. There it is. <laughs> I was still in the prophets. Duh. All right. And then I turned right to it. Wouldn't you know? Psalm 18, 6 to 7. Let me make sure that's the right one. Don't tell me. <laughs> 6 to 7? Nah, man, that ain't the right one. Yeah, go over to 19. Go over to 19 and look at 6 and 7. I don't know. Sometimes I miss these little details. My goodness, I have no idea where this psalm is. All right. I can't find it. I think I was probably right to begin with. Psalm of David. Does it begin with, in my distress? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. And listen to this. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. What, what are we doing here? We've got an example of where David prayed and the earth shook. We just saw an example of prayer and the earth shook with the early believers. And then in our own text, we see prayer singing and witnessing and we see the earth Shake. Now, here's my point. These are three examples from the scriptures where the people of God prayed to God in the midst of their trouble, and God responded by shaking these places. Isn't that interesting? God also answered their prayers. The frightened believers back in early Acts became filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness to preach the gospel. They experienced an earthquake, and they were filled with the boldness and Holy Spirit. Paul and Silas, in our account, were loosed from their bonds. God shook that place. Prayer answered they were loosed from their bonds. I would think that that was probably what they were praying for. God, save us out of this situation. We've got ministry to do. We've got work to do. These people are savage. They're probably going to kill us or keep us here forever. And David was delivered from the hands of Saul in that psalm. That's what he prayed about. Prayer brought about in all three instances... God's response, which was the shaking and the answer of prayer, which I think is 
phenomenal. I think it's fascinating. And a question that I asked myself as I was writing this was, do I and do we underestimate the power of prayer? Do we underestimate the power of prayer? I'll tell you what, our current prayer life, your prayer life, uh, will Actually, if you were to evaluate your prayer life, it will reveal what, what you actually believe about prayer and whether it's powerful or not. All you got to do is evaluate your own prayer life. If our prayers are always quick, every one of them, doesn't matter where you're at, what situation, well, uh, you know, uh, oh, Susie's husband just left her. Father God, bring him back. Amen. If our prayers are always short, if they're always quick, Guess what? We've got a low view of prayer. And I'm not talking about just living in prayer where you utter up those nice, quick prayers throughout the day. I think that's something we should do. But if all your prayers are short and quick, thank you, Jesus, amen. Like my meal prayers. Man, you got a low view of prayer. If you, if you do not pray boldly when you pray, you know, we can approach the throne of God, the throne of grace, boldly. If we do not pray boldly when we pray, we have a low view of prayer. We pray quick, quick prayers, if we pray without boldness, if we pray with little to no expectation that those prayers will be answered, we have a low view of prayer. If we do not pray intercessory prayers for others, we have a low view of prayer. Quick prayers, shallow prayers, short prayers, no intercessory prayers, these sorts of things. Just evaluate your prayer life. Is that who you are? And you may say, well, I pray all the time. Yeah, but if this is how you're praying, maybe you got a low view of prayer. Maybe you don't think there's power in prayer. And here's what's always interesting to us, and that's that the scriptures do not promote in any way, shape, or form a low view of prayer. Prayer is actually, actually essential to the life of a believer. Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote about prayer and backsliding, he tethers these two things together. This is amazing. You think about it right now. How many people have you known that were carrying on to the faith and they were so devoted and committed and you were just convinced that they were a real believer and it was legit and all of a sudden they start backsliding like crazy, they disappear and they act like they don't even love Jesus anymore. J.C. Ryle says it has something to do with prayer, their prayer life. Because we've all asked that question, what's my default answer? They were never a believer. Well, guess what? Believers can backslide. Ryle says a person can go back, a person can go back in the Christian faith after making a good start. A person can go back in the Christian faith after making a good start. People may do well for a period, like the Galatians, but then go after false teachers. There are those who sound good when their enthusiasm is high, like Peter, but then in a time of trial, they deny the Lord. Others lose their first love, as the Ephesians did. It is miserable being a backslider. True grace will never be extinguished and true union with Christ never broken. But a person, it seems, can fall away so far that they lose sight of their own security and despair of their own salvation. What is the cause of such backsliding? One of the causes is surely neglect of private prayer. Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, 
travel undertaken without prayer, homes chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, or the daily act of prayer itself being hurried over and gone through without meaning. These are some downward steps by which many a Christian descends to a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches a point where God allows them a tremendous fall. We may be sure people fall in private long before they fall in public. I love that. You think backsliding is just, just, it's all public. It starts happening when we neglect prayer long before anyone ever really takes notice. They, they, he says this, they backslide on their knees long before they backslide openly before the world. Like Peter, they first ignore the Lord's warning to watch and pray. Remember that from the garden? Then like Peter, their strength is gone and when tempted, deny their Lord. If you do not wish to be a backslider, check your praying, is what Ryle says. And as I said, if you've ever wondered why devout people, devout Christians go astray, Ryle says that it's because they have neglected prayer. What a profound and frightening insight. And I believe it to be true. I've seen this in my own life. When I pray more often and increase the length of my prayers, pray with boldness, my ability to stand against sin and temptation increases, which allows me to walk in greater holiness. I don't care who you are or what you believe. That's a fact in my own life. I will testify to that. My peace, my patience, my joy, these sorts of things, because sin kills those things, they all increase when I pray and walk in holiness my love for God and my love for others also increase as I pray more, as I take prayer seriously. Everything changes, literally. I ain't lying. I love what E.M. Bounds wrote. He said, what the church needs today is not, and this is 100 years ago, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, I'll add women, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. That's what the church needs today. Well, the church needs to get rid of the consumerism. It needs to quit being seeker sensitive. It needs to quit doing all these things. It needs to quit getting soteriology wrong. and It needs to quit trying to lead people in prayers of salvation because that doesn't save nobody. No, yes, 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 we need those things to go. But how are they going to go when we become a praying people? When the people of God commit themselves to seeking the Lord in prayer. Because if you're not praying, you're relying on what everyone else is doing and what everyone else is saying. Amen? See, I've been railing against these things and the consumerism and all this junk for two years, and this week I realized, pray, Phil! You want to see your life changed? Pray! You want to see others changed and impacted by the gospel? Pray! And don't just say, change Jimmy, amen. Change Fred, amen. Change Mary, amen. They certainly need the gospel. Pray intercessory prayers. God, reach them. Boldness. God loves whispering prayer, but he, he's fine with shouting too. When Brenda called me on Thursday and said, I'm going in to get tested, would you pray for me? 
I prayed after I hung up the phone with her, unlike I had in a long time. My wife's like, why are you shouting? I was in my office, and I was just praying. I think the results were already in. God had been faithful long before my prayer went up to him. But I prayed, and I tell you what, man, there was a fire in that moment. The church needs men of prayer. It needs women of prayer. It needs both of us. It needs us to be mighty in prayer. It's true. And I think it should begin with us right here at RHC. How often do we look at what everyone else is doing and say the lack thereof out there in that church or whatever, it's because they're doing this, this, and this. And maybe they are neglecting some of these things, and maybe they have gone down some stupid Alice in Wonderland tunnels, which we tend to do. But we should be praying for these people. Intercessory prayer. Instead of complaining and whining about them. This needs to begin with us, friends. What steps can we take to become a more prayerful church that walks in greater holiness, experiences more of God's blessings and peace and joy, becomes better protected against backsliding? Because I tell you what, we're all just one step away. One little slip and how can we become more effective in ministry in our community with the gospel? Here's something we can all do. Here's a few things. Mark out a time during each day for prayer. Pick a time. Look at your daily schedule. What do you have going? If nighttime doesn't work, do it in the morning. If night works best for you, do it then. And I say give yourself about 20 minutes. Don't close the door. Don't give yourself some time and, and close the door in a, in a special room every day and just two minutes later you're out of the room. Give yourself about 20 minutes. I don't know about you, but it takes me a little bit of time to get cooked up in things. Although I came right out of the gate on this sermon. I have no idea why I'm already sweating. I'm already sweating like Mike Tyson in a spelling bee. It ain't even funny. You think about that for a moment. Exasperate. X. Yeah. It takes a little bit of time. When you're praying, tell me that about 10, 15 minutes into it, it's like, oh, yeah, here we go. And how often we just, we're out of there. Mark out a time each day for prayer, morning, afternoon, evening, what works best for you. Give yourself about 20 minutes. You can use a prayer method like ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adore God in your prayer, confess your sin, thank him, and give up supplication for yourself and others. Intercede for others. That's a great method. I've been using it for a couple of months now. I love it. It just helps to keep me on track. Pray out loud. How many times are you sitting there praying and all of a sudden, corn dogs? What? Your stomach goes, pizza. And next thing you know, you're praying for pizza. Pray out loud. You'll be less distracted. You don't have to go in the, your house where there's other family. Lord, I come before you today, you know. And well, I do that at my house sometimes. And my wife's like, we're homeschooling. Sorry. Just praying. You trying to stop me from praying? So I'm trying to stop you from being so darn loud. Just, just pray. I just pray. I don't, don't mumble. We don't speak in tongues. Just pray, Lord, I come before you this morning. Pray out loud so you don't get distracted. The stupidest things come into our minds when we pray quietly. Just weird stuff. 
Pray out loud to minimize distractions. Journal your prayers if you like journaling. That's what the old Puritans did. A lot of the stuff that you'll read from them are their prayers that have been journaled. That's a good thing. You can watch how God answers prayer. You can track that. It's really, really awesome. I like to pray in the morning. It helps to set my day right. And I've come to find an abundance of truth in what John Bunyan wrote. He said, he who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. Amen to that. That's why I like the morning. You, you know how it is. Your day starts getting busy and all that. I'm supposed to be praying at 1, but I, I, got, I got a lunch appointment with Mark. Pick a time where it's not going to be messed up. I like the morning. It sets my day right. As I was writing this section, I was also reminded of Acts 2.42. We studied this text about 40 years ago. Acts 2.42 shows us, it was two years ago, Acts 2.42 shows us what the early church services were like, what the apostles put forward for the Lord's people as they came to worship, and what the Lord's people, the church, devoted themselves to. There are four things listed in that text. We learned about them a while ago. Teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. Do you see the connection between Acts 2.42 and how we run our worship services here? Do you realize that we based our gatherings off of that model and our 2.42 thing that we'll be doing in the future is based off that? People fellowship here before and after our gathering. I wish we had more time for fellowship on Sundays. There is teaching. You got family time. You got the sermon. Aaron's always teaching us something in between songs. There is communion. That's something they were committed to, the breaking of bread. And we pray several times. All those components are there. Now my hope in prayer as the pastor of this church has been that you, the people of this church, would develop over time, and some of you have, a devotion and commitment to those four things. Through constant exposure to them over the years, we would all begin to live them out in all areas of our lives. That we would become all become, in a sense, teachers in our homes and community, that we would be proclaiming the gospel, that we would train up our children in the way of the Lord, that we would all engage in Christian fellowship outside of these walls. It's great to happen at church, but it ought to be happening outside of it. That we would all commune with the Lord on a daily basis. You don't have to take the bread and wine or bread and juice at four times a day. That'd be awkward and difficult in these busy lives. But you can commune with the Lord. You can seek him. You can walk in fellowship with him on a daily basis. That's what it means to commune with him in a sense. And that we would all become a praying people, that every one of us would become what we always hear, and that's a prayer warrior, someone who prays. What we do in our worship services, why do we do what we do? In our worship service, because the Bible instructs us to do these things. When we gather, Acts 2.42, and guess what? When we go. These are the things that you have been exposed to for almost, for over two years now. And I'm hoping that you're practicing them outside of this gathering. Because that's who we're to be as a church. These things aren't for Sundays only, but for Monday through Sunday. May we commit ourselves to living them out each day. Amen? Now what happened after the earthquake and prisoners were freed? Look at 27. Got to get a drink. It's water. <laughs> Sound like I was going to the bar. I got to get a drink. 
One of y'all ought to just replace that right there with vodka one of these mornings and see what happens to me when I go for it. <laughs> Don't do that. I really won't be able to find any passages. Where was I supposed to be at? 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Hi! He's about to do that thing. You've seen those in the movies? Hi! Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Notice how the earthquake woke the jailer up. You see it? I'm not sure if he was supposed to be sleeping. He's a jailer. <laughs> He's a prison guard. <laughs> right? I don't know, dude. I think it was unlawful for jailers to nap while on duty. I don't know for sure. Being a jailer was a serious task in Greco-Roman culture. During Paul's day, jailers could be put to death for breaking their codes if they were found to be sleeping at their post while on duty, that could be punishable by death to some degree, or at least imprisonment. If an inmate or inmates escaped during their watch, they could be put to death. If they were found to be conspiring, conspiring, conspiring in some way, shape, or form with an inmate or inmates, they could be put to death. I mean, they exercised their duties, their job, under the constant threat of personal death. It's like, man, if you just make one false move in that particular career choice, you, you don't get fired. You get killed. The Philippian jailer woke up when the earthquake rocked the prison, and he looked around, and he saw that the cell doors were open, and he figured that all the prisoners had escaped, right? That'd be the first thing that comes to mind when you see all the doors open or the door open or what have you. You'd be thinking, I'm done. They're gone. And seized with fear, he drew his sword from his scabbard and turned it on himself. He was about to fall on his own sword as old King Saul had done on the battlefield a long time ago. Now look at verse 28. Paul saw him. He said, it says here that Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. Paul took notice of the jailer, realizing that he was about to commit suicide. He called to him, Don't do it. We're all here. And I think it's real interesting that none of the prisoners had escaped. He said that for we are all here, not just him and Silas, the whole group. No one had gone out. No one had run for their lives. Paul, Silas, and the others were all present. I kind of imagine in my mind's eye, I mean, you just realize you're in jail and you just got hit by an earthquake and everything's broken around you. I think they probably gathered up like a little clutch of eggs in the corner. Who knows? I mean, that, 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 you ever been through an earthquake? We have them around here pretty regularly. None of them are all that big. I remember one we had back, I think, in the late 80s or something. When was it? Yeah. I could have surfed my pool back then. I mean, the waves were coming six feet out of our pool during that last big one we had. Unbelievable. Now look at 29. And the jailer called for lights. He heard Paul, and he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's interesting. The jailer called for the torches to be lit, and he rushed right into the inner cell. The door was open. He ran in, and then he fell to his knees, trembling with fear. Now the tables were turned, weren't they? The jailer was filled with fear, and he fell to his knees before his prisoners. It was always the other way around. 
The prisoners were the ones who were fearful and submissive like this. Why did he fall and tremble in fear? All his prisoners were present as Paul had declared, right? If his trembling didn't have anything to do with losing his prisoners, because that'd be the ultimate offense, what caused his trembling? What caused this fear? It would appear that the jailer was aware of the message Paul and Silas had been preaching. And he regarded the earthquake as a supernatural confirmation that they spoke the truth. While presenting the gospel before the earthquake struck, Paul and Silas may have been paraphrasing, paraphrasing a text like 418 of Luke, where Jesus, Jesus, gosh, I can't even get my words right. He was Jesus, Jesus and Jewish. I guess I'm speaking too fast. Anyone, you get older, you start blending words together like that? Is that normal, or do I need to go get my brain checked out? It's normal? Because it scares me. I do it all the time. It happens when I'm preaching. It happens when I'm talking to my wife. That's kind of fun. What, what if, think about this, what if Silas and Paul had been talking about this particular passage when this earthquake hit? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This would be gospel. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. <laughs> what if they were just preaching that back and forth to them inmates and an earthquake hits and everything breaks loose? <laughs> Can you imagine describing this passage in prison and an earthquake hits and then suddenly the cell doors fly open and the prisoners' bonds fall off? That would startle some of the listeners, right? Luke didn't write down Paul's exact prayers, songs, or words, but we can tell that he was preaching the gospel by the jailer's response. The jailer heard Paul, and when that earthquake struck, he put two and two together. He believed that the message of Paul was true based on the earthquake. There was no coincidence in his mind. He knew that the quake was supernatural and that it corresponded with Paul's preaching and this frightened him he fell to his knees and trembled in fear that's what happened also we mustn't neglect the fact that the jailer just had and just experienced a near-death experience the earthquake could have killed the jailer along with everyone else in there and if the prisoners had escaped that would have definitely meant certain death for the jailer when you add these things together, what Paul was probably preaching in the earthquake and the dynamics of that, when you add all these things together, the jailer became completely overwhelmed, he became horrified, and he became desperate. He rushed in and threw himself at Paul and Silas' feet, knowing that Paul and Silas preached what that little young slave girl had been touting all along, the way of salvation. And he asked them, when he ran up to them, he knew what they were preaching, this way of salvation. He wanted to know what that meant or what that was. He ran right up to them, fell trembling, and asked them to step right to the side or outside real quick. And what did he say to them? What must I do? A Roman, a Greco-Roman, a Greek, whatever he was, it's a Greek territory. What must I do as a Roman prison guard? What must I do to be saved? How did Paul and Silas respond to him? Look at verse 31. 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is what they said. Notice with me how Paul and Silas did not tell the jailer to clean up his life. Well, if you want to be able to come to God, you better get some Irish spring out and wash that whole sinful, nasty body up. And you better get rid of that pornography. You better get rid of those lusts and those struggles. You better get rid of that sailor's mouth, brother. He ain't going to take you the way you are like that. You better clean yourself up. You better get in the shower. They did not tell him that. They did not exhort him to forsake any particular sin, did they? They didn't even tell him, well, you got to repent of your sins before you can do anything. They didn't even tell him that, did they? They didn't t attach sin as if he could forsake any sin in his condition right there. They did not tell him to do anything. Rather, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Trusting faith in Christ, apart from anything we bring to the table, is all that is required to be saved from what we rightly deserve, condemnation and hell. This is the promise of grace to us as individuals, and it extends, as we see in the text, to our households as well. John Calvin wrote, Let us, therefore, understand that there is no salvation whatsoever outside of Jesus Christ. For he is the beginning and the end of faith, and he is all in all. Let us continue in humility, knowing that we can only bring condemnation upon ourselves. Therefore, we need to find all that pertains to salvation in the pure and free mercy of God. And we would say that's right there in Jesus Christ. Now we could be thinking at this point, since their response to the jailer was believe, and Jesus, you and your household, we might be led to think, well, what about repentance? How does repentance come in? Isn't repentance part of the gospel calling? When the apostle Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, a multitude of people cried out, what shall we do? Translated, what must we do to be saved? The first thing Peter declared was, repent. Jesus himself preached repentance. During his ministry, he said, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. If repentance is part of the gospel, if it's necessary to the gospel, why did, didn't Paul and Silas tell the jailer to repent? That's a great question. And the reason why I'm going to answer it, and I ask the question and then answer it, is because there's a whole lot of people that got this verse screwed up. Now let's define repentance before answering this question. Just a quick question survey or summary of what it means. Repentance basically means to turn away from self-reliance, self-earning, and all human effort to turn away from all things, so to speak, in regards to salvation. That's what it means. Repentance is to admit that I cannot save myself and then to submit myself to the one who can save me, Jesus Christ. How is repentance threaded into the gospel, well, some paraphrased examples. The gospel basically says you cannot save yourself under any, any, under any circumstances. So repent and turn to the one whom God sent as the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. You can't save yourself, so turn away from trying to do it. The gospel says all of our efforts and works are but filthy rags, as Mike said earlier. But the efforts and works of Jesus are perfect and completely satisfactory. 
Therefore, repent and believe in him. Not your works. Are we saved by works? Absolutely. Not your works, not my works, not the preacher's works, not someone else's works. By Jesus' works. Only his works met the criteria of God and satisfied his wrath and justice and holiness and righteousness. So as we can see, repentance is part of the gospel call. Okay then, why didn't Paul and Silas tell the jailer to repent? We see it all throughout scripture. Answer. Are you ready for the answer? I'm not going to say because repentance is not required. That's what some seem to think. These guys who you know, go way over the pendulum swings way over to grace and it's free grace and that's just it. And it's not even you who lives anymore. It's only Christ in you so you don't even have to be obedient to the royal law or the law doesn't apply to us. All this antinomianism crap. That's where people are running crazy with this stuff today. Grace, 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 grace. All you got to do is remember grace, 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 grace. No, we work hard not to get saved but to be sanctified. Answer, why didn't they say, repent, jailer, and believe in Jesus Christ? They didn't tell him to repent because he was already repenting. His actions proved this. His trembling. You think he was just scared because of the earthquake or because God made himself known to him in that moment and that should, in the truest sense, will create trembling when you have an experience with the holy, almighty God. His trembling, his falling to his knees. What does it mean to fall to one's knees? It means submission. I got nothing. And his question. There's repentance in his question. What must I do to be saved? His trembling, his falling in submission, and his question all sprang forth from a repentant heart. God's grace was already alive and active in his life. His actions, actions showed that he had turned away from himself and his previous beliefs, whatever they were. A person who is depending upon their self or upon their religion for salvation won't tremble and fall to their knees and ask, what must I do to be saved? They already think they're saved. There's no reason to tremble. There's no reason to fear in their mind. There's no reason to ask the question. I've been working hard. I've been doing my thing. God's got to be pleased with me. They think they are saved. It's only those who explode like this guy and tremble in fear and ask this question, fall to their knees, and what must I do in this moment of desperation? That's repentance. This is what spiritually broken people do. This is what spiritually bankrupt people do. This is what the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, do. When Paul and Silas looked at the jailer, they saw a shattered, helpless, repentant man. And when he asked for the truth, they gave it to him, man. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke this with certainty. They spoke this with conviction. And guess what, friends? They spoke this with authority. There is no wavering about Paul and Silas's testimony or words here. There is no room for debate, no room for other religions, no room for other avenues, no room for other paths, no room for works righteousness. This is a definitive statement based on divinely revealed truth, special revelation, the scripture, and personal testimony. 
We don't look at this and say, well, that's one way to get saved. No, they're saying that's the only way that you can be saved, Philippian jailer. And how is one saved? As Paul and Silas said, believe in Jesus Christ. End of story, period. That's it. But Paul and Silas offered the jailer more than personal salvation. They also said, you and what? Your household. Did they mean that the jailer's household could be saved through the jailer's belief? No, and a lot of people have claimed that, and that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You cannot be saved. I did junior high ministry for years, and for whatever reason, junior high kids think they're saved because of their parents' faithfulness and faith. And I would say to them, you are not saved because of your parents. And they'd go, ha! I'd basically say it like that. You need to repent of your sin. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to turn away from what you think is goodness. And you need to turn away from their faith because their faith can't save you. And some people take this to mean, well, you know, I can get my whole house saved if I believe. No one can be saved by someone else's faith. Period. What they meant was that the offer of salvation was not only for the jailer, but for his household. This message of salvation is for you, Philippian jailer, and it's for your household. If the jailer and his household believed in the Lord, if they believed in the Lord Jesus, they could be saved. That's what Paul and Silas meant. Now look at 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. The jailer invited Paul and Silas to his house. Why? So they could preach the gospel to his family. This guy was a new convert. He had just been saved. He probably figured, well, I don't know if I'm polished enough to really present this thing. I could tell him to believe in Jesus. He thought, well, I'm going to invite these guys to my house. Let them preach the gospel. Maybe he didn't have the confidence, or maybe it just made sense to him. I don't know. He, he invited them over. You come over. And they came over to preach the gospel to his and his family and to his servants, to his whole household. And I don't think that Paul and Silas were allowed at this point to leave the prison. He just took inmates out of a prison to take to his own house. You notice that? And sometimes believers do the most foolish things for Christ and the most risky things. Paul said, I'll be a fool for Christ. There's an example of it. The jailer apparently didn't care. He took him right out of there. He took him to his house. He wanted his family and servants to hear the good news, and Paul and Silas preached it. Look at 33. It says, and he, the jailer, took them uh, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Whoa. The jailer took Paul and Silas and he, he cleaned up their wounds. Remember, they had been severely beaten just the day before, earlier that day or the day before. They had been beaten by the magistrates, so they were hurting. He took them up and washed their wounds. Paul and Silas undoubtedly spoke about baptism as a part of identifying with Christ, not as a means to their salvation, but as a fruit of it. And the jailer asked to be baptized as a symbol of his new faith. We see that right there. What do we see in Acts over and over and over? People believe, people got baptized. They didn't wait 20 years. People got baptized right after they believed, right after they got saved. In fact, the text even shows us this. His family also believed in the Lord Jesus and requested to be baptized. 
Paul and Silas then baptized the whole group, the whole household. They had all gotten saved. And all of this took place in the middle of the night. They were praying, they were singing, and they were witnessing at midnight. What time is it now, one or two? The earthquake struck at midnight. It had to be one or two in the morning, maybe later. It's amazing. The jailer then began to exhibit two signs of true conversion, of a true Christian. Look at the last verse, verse 34. Then he, speaking of the, Jew, uh, the, the jailer, then he brought them up into his house and set f- uh, food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. The jailer brought Paul and Silas into the upper room of his house where his family dined. Apparently they had a dining quarter upstairs, kind of like the upper room back in Jerusalem. This was popular in homes back in the architecture in those days. He had food prepared, uh, prepared for them and he put it before them. They, they dined. What was this that he did here? What kind of example was this? How did he display a sign of true saving faith? Well, we call this as hospitality. He showed hospitality right here, immediately after he was saved. The people of the Lord are to be hospitable. While Paul Paul and Silas were eating, the jailer and his family rejoiced in their salvation. This was another display of true saving faith, which was joy. They were rejoicing over their conversion. Two signs of true salvation. Christian will be hospitable. Doesn't mean every day they do something. Maybe they do once a week, whatever. They're going to have a heart and a disposition and attitude of hospitality towards others. And another thing, they're going to have joy. And they're going to rejoice in their salvation. There's two things right there in the text. Hospitality and joy are signs of true conversion. And I think it's interesting that, that Lydia, we studied her a couple of weeks ago, and her household... And the jailer and his household were the only people to be saved, according to our text, according to the scriptures, during Paul's first trip to Philippi. And I also think it's interesting that Luke chose to highlight the hospitality of both Lydia and the jailer. There are other accounts in Acts where we see people get saved, but there's no mention of their hospitality. This doesn't mean that they were unhospitable. I'm certain they were. But why did Luke go out of his way to include these details in chapter 16, right? The first half of 16, we see Lydia get saved. She brings them to her house, turns her house into a missions base. She shows them incredible hospitality. And right here with the Philippian jailer, after he gets saved, invites them over, his household gets saved, they get fed, there's rejoicing. See the hospitality? In both instances, these are the only two accounts during the first missions journey where we see people get saved in Philippi. After this, Paul leaves. Does a couple more things after this, and then he's out of there. That's incredible. Why does Luke highlight the hospitality of both? Well, why did he go out of his way to include these details? I'll close our time with three verses and a charge from the Lord to us all, and I think it'll make sense. I'll answer the question through these things. Romans 12, 13. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
this is an explicit command from Paul to the Christian churches throughout Rome. And what is his explicit command? Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's exactly what he says. Practice hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Do not forget to show hospitality. The first one was to the brethren. The second one here in Hebrews 13. Do not forget to show hospitality. Speaking to the Hebrew Christians. Hebrew um, Messianic Christians, if you will. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Hospitality to the brethren, hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality to one another without any grumbling. Don't grumble about it, just show it. All three instances... Explicit commands from the Holy Word of God to Christians. These verses make it very clear that hospitality is required of all Christians. Which I think is one of Luke's big points in chapter 16. I don't want to take away from the salvations and the grace of God moving in that way. But you better ask yourself, why does he include the hospitality of both of these groups of people or these two individuals in only two accounts of salvation. That's amazing. The beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, he does that. Why does he do it? Because hospitality is required of all Christians. To the brethren and to strangers. Even to non-believers. We are commanded to show hospitality. More than that, more than commanded to show it as we see in these scriptures that I've just read, but more than being commanded, it should come very naturally through us as the people of God. You shouldn't have to force it. It could be that there's ignorance of it or that we just get so darn busy and we forget, but when we come back to the word, we see that it's required and our heart leaps and says, yes, I want to show hospitality. God has been so hospitable to me. Think of the example of Lydia and the Philippian jailer. Think of those examples. They were saved and then hospitality flowed from them. And for us, if we are showing hospitality to others in our daily, weekly, or monthly routine, or when needs arise in the church or with others, this is great. You open up your home uh, during the week as a home group, you're being hospitable, you're showing hospitality, you're inviting them into your house, into your comfort, into your place of dwelling, and you're probably giving them some snacks and some water or coffee. That's good stuff. If you're not, showing hospitality, what would it take to get you in stride with the will and word of God? And we can't just keep reading these things and keep doing what we're doing if we're not doing what we're commanded to do. We certainly shouldn't continue to take communion every week if we're not obeying. As harsh as that sounds, it's true. I think it's a sin to forsake what the scriptures make explicit that we are to do. It is a sin. We're not being obedient. What would it take to get you to be obedient, to change, to begin to show hospitality? I think most Christians, I really do, I think most Christians want to be hospitable. I do. I think, most, I think true Christians want to be hospitable or maybe even more hospitable, but I suspect many are too busy to engage. Your life's chaotic. You're running kids back and forth to sports every night. You got this going, you got that going, you got your book club. You got this, you got that. You're all over the place. You work late, your hours are unpredictable. You're everywhere, you're all over the place. You wish you were omnipresent. 
life is just slamming you. I think most Christians are just too busy to be hospitable or to be more hospitable. You're busy, 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 busy. But I think the question for us all becomes, is it right for us to allow busyness to cancel out important biblical things like hospitality and what I talked about earlier, which was prayer? Do you think that I'm busy is a good excuse to use before God for why you couldn't obey his word? I suspect that if any one of us were to close right now and say, God, I'm just too busy, I, I think that he would say this to you, unbusy yourself. Because there are things that matter more than some of these things that we engage in and do. And for whatever reason, we just think that we, we, we're following this American idea and dream as the church. And we think that we've got to do all things and be all things to all people. And sports are what are going to save our kids. Sports ain't going to save Jack. Sports might be better than being on dope throughout their adolescence and things like I was. But sports ain't saving no one. I got my kids in sports to keep them busy so they don't succumb to drugs and drug abuse and all those things. Do you know how many, have you ever heard of steroids? We need to quit putting ourselves in every environment and attaching ourselves to every stinking opportunity. And we need to get serious about what God's word says. And we need to become a prayerful people. And we need to become people that show hospitality. This is what the word says. Business is just not going to cut it. This ain't easy. I ask you, what do you need to change about your life or calendar or whatever to become more hospitable or more prayerful? What do you need to change? This ain't advice. It could also be, according to our text that we've been studying, that some in this room have yet to experience a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus, which this text makes so clear that is of the highest importance. What or who are you relying on? Yourself? Personal goodness? Religion? You know, it would be a sin for me to withhold this information from you. So I'm going to tell you this right now as plainly as I can. The scriptures make it lucidly clear that you and I need Jesus and that we can't save ourselves and no one else and nothing else can. If there were other ways, Paul would have said, believe in the Lord Jesus and trust Buddha. There is no other way. You need to know this. If you have yet to come to know Jesus in a saving way, you need to turn away from yourself or whatever you're clinging to and you need to trust in Jesus Christ. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself and no one else can save you. Nothing can save you. Only Jesus can save you. As Spurgeon so aptly put it, thou needest to be saved from thyself, not by thyself. Be like the Philippian jailer. Humble yourself and obey the instructions of God's holy writ, of the instructions of Paul in this text. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And Paul said this, and you will be saved.
And then I would say this, and it says it in the text, and share the good news with your household that they might be saved too. Because this offer of grace isn't just for you. Right now, it's for the world. It goes out to everyone. It's time for communion, which is for the Lord's people alone. If you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, Jesus Christ, I just warn you in all love, don't take the elements. Do not take the bread. Do not take the juice if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting in him for your salvation, him alone. And church, I want you to ponder the things you've heard this morning during your time with the Lord in communion. I want you to ponder these things that we've talked about, hospitality, prayer, the importance of these things. I want you to ponder these things. Get real with God this morning. And if you haven't been obedient in these areas, confess and repent of your sin. We want to also remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what those elements represent, that juice and that bread, his broken and shattered body, and that juice represents his shed blood for the remission, permanent removal of our sin. Maybe you haven't been a hospitable person. Maybe you haven't been a prayerful person. Maybe there's other sin in your life. So what? Confess it to God. Remember what Christ did, because guess what? Those sins... He removes. And I implore you to be refreshed in God's grace after you spend some time confessing and then remembering what the Lord Jesus did, what only he could do. Be refreshed by God's grace. Be restored. Be renewed in this moment. And then I'd also say, too, commit yourself to obeying the Lord. I'm going to warn you, too, believers. If you haven't been a prayerful person, and you're not a hospitable person, you haven't showed these things, don't sit down and pretend with God and take these elements. You need to commit, your, you need to confess your sin and say, God, I'm going to commit to these things. Show me the way. Now you're free and clear to take the elements. We can't keep taking the elements every week, every Sunday, while we still have sin in our lives when we're not obeying the word. We're just racking up judgment on ourselves, discipline on ourselves. I know that's what I have to do. I've got to come to terms with who I am. And God wants me to change. And he's empowered me to change. Father, thanks for this time. And I pray that we'd be real with you. That we would confess any sin that we have. And it might not be hospitality. It might not be a absence or neglect of prayer. It could be a billion other things. We're sinners. God, may we have a time of confessing our sin, a time of remembering what you did for us, Jesus Christ, and how the work is finished. It's all you. We would be refreshed and that we would recommit ourselves to obeying the royal law, loving God, doing what he says, and loving others and caring for them and meeting those needs and showing hospitality. There's a million ways to love others. May that be our true heart, to love God and others. That's a believer. Thank you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Help yourselves.